0: While the band's making their way down, how about if you take your Bible out, if you have one with you, and turn to John, and we're going to be in the first chapter of John this morning. I want to pray with you before, uh, before we jump into this, so I'm going to ask you to do something. There's a good chance that some of us have found our Sunday occurring very, very quickly, right? Right. Um, Weekends come around with amazing regularity. I'm just always shocked that, okay, it's Sunday again. For some of us, the chance is that maybe this is the first time we've really slowed down to talk to God since last weekend. So let me ask you to do this. Just kind of open yourself up, just you yourself right now, just whisper a prayer to God and ask Him to speak to you. Father, the prayers of your saints ascend before your throne, you describe it as sparks from a fire ascending upwards, and you say it's a sweet aroma to you. I know you're very pleased with the fragrance that you're taking in right now, of your people asking for you to speak. I ask for all of us that you would use the power of your Holy Spirit that inhabits this place to guide us, rebuke us where you need to, love on us, teach us so that we can respond to your leading and your guiding in our life. Father, for some who may not know you at all, I would ask for them that this encounter with you will be life-changing. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see on the screen, Revelation chapter 19. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, penned what you see at the very, very end of the book. It's, It's after he's seen the earth destroyed. It's after the apocalypse, what we know of as Armageddon. And, and Jesus has returned. And he looks at heaven opening up and he sees Jesus on a white horse, calls him faithful and true. But then he also says this about him, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. It's the name that is given to Jesus in heaven, among many other names. We're looking at John 1 one this morning, and right away, he is called the Word of God. So we want to really understand what's going on here, because my experience, the names that are given to Jesus sometimes are capable of causing you to recoil. Sometimes the name Jesus causes people to do things. Maybe some of you, the very first time you ever heard Jesus' name was like this. Jesus Christ, can't you do anything right? Like a swear word, right? I had a child actually say to me one time, why did they name Jesus a swear word? No frame of reference, right? Sometimes Jesus' name becomes an exclamation point and people say, geez, can you believe that? See, Jesus is an abbreviation for Jesus, right? And, And others use it as like a shock. Jesus, he just scored. Can you believe that? So whatever form it takes outside of culture in, in, in cultural settings is different than the way he's spoken of in the Bible. Did you ever notice that no one does that on planet Earth with anyone else's name? No, no one does like, oh, Buddha, can you believe it? See, It just doesn't happen, right? It happens with the name of the Lamb of God. So to the Greeks, he's the Iesus, that's how they knew him, the Gentiles living in the period of time from the beginning of the turn of the century to 33 A.D., they referred to him as the Iesus. To the Jews, he's Yeshua, the Nazareth, they knew him from the northern part of Israel. Virtually every modern historian, every archaeologist alive today accept the fact that there was a real historical Jesus, a Galilean who was executed by the Roman government. What no one saw coming was the resurrection that would take place three days later. No one heard or thought or even conceived of the thought of a man rising from the dead. And as the news of the resurrection circulated around the known world, across the globe, history began to turn as though it was a giant door on a hinge. People trying to process the thought, wait, God comes from heaven. God becomes man. Man kills God. God goes into the earth. God is resurrected. God returns to heaven. An amazing thought. What do I do with that information? And tick, 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 tick. All the calendars come to a stop. Planet Earth has to recalculate itself based on the arrival of one. The calendar that you operate with today, 2015 AD, Anno Domini, the arrival, 2015 after the arrival of the year of our Lord. Everything reboots because of the arrival of one person. How do we understand this one who caused our planet to reboot its hard drive? The earth didn't stop when I was born, it's not going to stop when I die. How do we understand him? Some look to culture. Some want to hang out on campus, figure out what are people saying, what are the other students saying on campus. Maybe I'll buy into that. What do the movies say? What do people say in gas stations? What about religious tradition? What does religious tradition say? Well, a lot of things based on where you're going and what you're listening to. What about my grandfather, my family members? What does my aunt say? What is popular opinion? Islam regards Jesus As a bringer of Scripture, one of the prophets of God, but not the Son of God, Judaism rejects him completely and looks at Jesus as nothing more than a historical figure, totally rejecting him as the Messiah. And so they continue to wait and wait and wait and wait for someone to arrive who's already arrived. Paul was one of those in Judaism We've discovered him through the book of Acts that we've been studying, and we've taken this four-week break to start the series called Revealing Jesus. Paul was one of those, actually imprisoning people and killing people because they claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul called himself a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, saying, no way, Jesus is not the one, until one day when God condescended to Paul's level, said, here I am. He revealed Himself. The revealing of Jesus in people's lives changes people forever, doesn't it, church? When you come to understand who Jesus is, everything changes. So for us this morning, this first week, we're going to travel back in time as far as we possibly can to the time before time to understand who is this one. In order to launch us, I'm going to go to a writing from Paul. We're going to go first, not to John, but you can keep your finger there. We're going to go, and you'll see it on the screen, to 2 Corinthians 12. And 2 Corinthians 12 is from a, a personal experience that Paul had when he wrote this in verse 2. I know a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. The Bible speaks of three heavens. The heaven that surrounds us, our atmosphere, you and I breathe it, it's where the birds fly, that's the first heaven. There's the second heaven, which is the stratosphere, where the solar system and beyond is at. And the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. It's called paradise. Paul refers to it in verse 4. Up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Things on a scale that you and I have not begun to imagine... Scripture says, the ear has not heard, nor is the eye seen, or has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has in store for you. Paul says, I saw it, and it's so unbelievable I can't even begin to talk about it. Yet there was even the thorn given to me in the flesh, so I wouldn't talk about it because I became so prideful over it. If you want to read about some of it, read Revelation chapter 4 or Isaiah chapter 6. If you've never read that before, read it this week. Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 4 talks about some of the things that Paul experienced. What and who is in this place that's not ruled by a clock? To grasp at the details of this kind of magnitude, we can't go to popular opinion, we can't go to culture, we can't even go to what our relatives say. We have to go to God's Word because it provides everything that we need to know. It is the source of information. So John 1.1 starts out this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And right now some people are thinking, see, this is why I don't read the Bible, Mark. It's so hard to understand. What is that saying? Well, let me help you with this. John's writing a summation, a summarization of Jesus stepping into the sphere of time when He put on flesh and became a man. In other words, this, how God the Son became the Jesus of history, Jesus the man. Now stop right there and just let that sink in for a moment. God became Jesus. Just, just let that thought ease with you. Let, let's take on three words. We're only going to do this first sentence this morning anyway, so let's break it down in the beginning." What is John talking about here? Because this sounds incredibly familiar. Sounds like Genesis 1-1, right? We, we immediately see the tie. What's going on? Was this an accident? No, it was incredibly intentional on the part of John. He's writing the sentence structure the exact same way Genesis 1-1 occurs. You see the parallel. Matter of fact, this word beginning is the word archae in the Greek language. It's the source of the English word architect. So look at what it means because it has dual purpose to it. Not dual meanings, but dual purpose. It's the source or the origin, but it's also the one who's got the power, who is the creator. So it, it's both true of Jesus. He's the creator and the ruler and the designer. So RK being used here in John 1.1 is referring to the beginning of something, the beginning of the universe, not the very first thing created, meaning Jesus is not the first thing created, the origin of the universe. Let me clarify this for you and give, give you an example that comes from Revelation um, chapter 4, I think it is, Reve- Revelation 3. 14. You see it on the screen? John's going through this laundry list of names, names of Jesus. He's known as the Amen, the faithful one, the true one, the beginning of the creation of God. So some people would look at that and say, well, that means Jesus is the first thing created. No, that's not what it's saying. He's the Arche. He's the origin, the architect. The designer of the creation of God. See, this is what this means for us, church. Jesus already exists before heaven and earth. He didn't start in the manger. Uh, That may be blowing some people's minds right now. Wait, I've always heard that Jesus started in the manger. Jesus the man. God the Son is not a created being. So let's start with this premise in this issue of time. Time began with the start of the universe, right? Right? Just say yes, so that we know you're awake, right? Okay? Time, time began with the start of the universe. It's an accepted premise. We, we will start there. So whatever is before the start of the universe is eternal. I know it's hard to get your mind around it. It's hard for me to get my mind around it. So let's say it this way. There was a point when the universe did not exist. Creationists and evolutionists don't agree on a whole lot. But on that point, they agree. There is a time when the universe did not exist. So contrast that with this thought. According to God's Word, there was never a time when the Godhead, the triune God, did not exist. There has never been a time when God originated because He's always been. So God Himself says, I'm the self-existent one. God is on Mount Sinai with Moses, and Moses says, I don't even know what to tell people your name is. How do I explain you? God says, just tell them that I am. Well, that helps a whole lot. Really, what do I tell them? Tell them, I am that I am. I am that I am beyond time. I am that I am the self-existent one. I am that I am that I need nothing. I have always been. David struggled with this. King David wrote in Psalm chapter 90, before the mountains were even born, you are God. This is the way he actually said it. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, so we made it through the first three words in the beginning. In the beginning, let's go to the next phrase, was the Word. What's that saying? In the beginning was the Word. So we know that God creates by His Word, right? When when you go to Genesis and you read chapter 1, it doesn't say, and God did. It says, and God said. So God creates by His Word. It's how He speaks things into existence. So we back that up with Psalm 33.9. And Psalm 33.9 says, He commanded and it stood fast. Not that he did, and it stood fast. He spoke. So you translate to the New Testament, and you find God in a boat, and Jesus holds up his hand in the midst of a squall, and says, Silence! And the sea becomes flat. And the disciples in the boat fall on their face and say, My Lord and my God, how is this possible? That creation responds to his words. Because he's God. And God speaks, and creation responds. That in itself is an amazing thought, but I want to focus in on the word was. So we'll just back up one slide so you can see that. Was the word. If you don't mind circling in your Bible, you might want to circle the word was, because it occurs four times in the same sentence. That means the author really, 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 really wanted you to get it down. The the word was is there repetitive for this reason. It's extremely important. Now, at the risk of making your eyes roll in the back of your head, just let me explain this briefly. The word was in the Greek language is the word en, en. It's not translatable over into the English language, so we struggle, we grasp trying to figure out how do we take a substitute word and put it in place? See, the word en being a verb, it's an action word, right? Just think back to fourth grade English class. Verbs are action words, so N is a verb, but in this case, it's a continuing action word, meaning it has no source of origin or ending. It's always happening. So N was the word. N, the word, was the word, meaning no beginning point. Now I can see I'm losing you, so here, listen to this. Here's, here's what we're dealing with. Just as in Genesis 1.1, there's no hint, there's no imagination whatsoever that God had an origin. Genesis 1.1 just starts out, in the beginning, God created. It didn't say, in the beginning, God was created. In the beginning, God. In the same way, in John 1.1, in the beginning, was, meaning continuous action, He's always been. The Word always existed, never a point of beginning. If that's a head-scratcher for you, we'll leave that behind for now. The, The word, word, in the Greek language is the word logos, okay? So logos has a specific meaning to the Greek people. If you're living in the first century, logos is this force, this force in the universe, and this force is the source of all wisdom. But to the Greeks, logos is a very impersonal force, It's got no meaning to my life other than it's the source of the wisdom. But Logos is not unique to the Greeks. Logos is also used by the Hebrews, and the Hebrew people think of Logos as being this source of God's activity on planet Earth. And through Logos, God does things. It's the agent by which He acts. So in that sense, the word does things. It's action-oriented. Here's an example for you. Look with me on the screen at Genesis. Genesis 1-3. And God said, Let there be. So, by the word of his mouth, something happened. The word does things. So, by his word, he establishes covenants. Hang with me on this. There's a reason for this. By his word, he makes promises. So God begins talking to Abraham about the future of the Jewish people, and He says things like this, Genesis 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. What's God about to do? He's about to make a promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great people on the planet of the earth. There'll be no one like you. Your seed will be as the seed of the stars. That's God entering in because of His Word into a promise. How did God give the Ten Commandments? By the Word of His mouth. Here's another example for you from 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one. 31 The Word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Why is this so significant? Why have we spent the first ten minutes on this? Because by His Word, He promises you eternal life. By His Word... He says, I forgive you of your sins. See, that's a word you want to know that you can trust, right? It's not like man's word. It's God's word. And when God speaks, things happen. So by His word, He can say, I'm leaving for a little while, but I'm coming back again. And when I come back, I'm taking you to be with me. In the meantime, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He can also say things like, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. See, by His Word, God makes commitments to us. Now, if you really want to jump off the cliff, we've got to go forward into verse 1, into the eternal existence, because in verse 1, it says not only in the beginning was the Word, but it says the Word was with God. Wow. I thought I was just getting it down. In the beginning was the Word, I'm good there, but then John joins it with this amazing statement. We arrive at this place of understanding this Word has always been in existence. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about face-to-face communication, intimate relationship, God the Son with God the Father. It's simply stated in four words in the English language. In the Greek language, it's even easier. It's three words, theon. but what it means... Way beyond intimate fellowship. Prostantheon is is this sense of two personal beings in intimate contact with each other. And from this launches our understanding of the Trinity. From all eternity, God the Father in intimate fellowship with God the Son. Who in your life is the closest person to you? In a moment, I bet it popped into your head. Some of you smart husbands are leaning to your wife and saying you, baby. (laughs) Who in your life has the most intimate relationship with you? And once that name or that image pops in your head, times it by a trillion, 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 or as my kids used to say, a gazillion, Dad. And then you begin to scratch at the relationship between God the Father and God the Son who know no sin, who know no fallenness, who dwell in pure holiness, in intimate relationship with each other. Watch the intimacy that we can barely grasp in our feeble finite mind when Jesus is in the garden. John chapter 17. He's at the end of his life and he's praying to God the Father. It's it's time for me to return. Look what he says. John 17, 5, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. I've done everything. I've completed all that we agreed that I would complete. Bring me back. Glorify me just the way I was before. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And then this incredible transition, verse 1, and the Word was God. See, the Word is not just this Greek understanding of a force. It's not just the Hebrew understanding of this action of God's activity on planet Earth. The Word is not removed from God. The Word is God. And so this becomes incredibly, absolutely crushing when you comprehend the magnitude of this. And I have to approach this the way that you are with Profound humility. Jesus left this for me. He he left this for you. This kind of intimacy. Because verse 2 goes on to hammer the door shut. He was in the beginning with God. That's the source of Jesus. Overwhelming truth. That's why Jesus could say things like John 14, 9. Hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Read those words. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Crazy people talk like that. If somebody talks like that to you, you get up and leave the room, right? It's like, what are you saying? Are you nuts? That's why people wanted to kill him. They literally picked up stones to crush his skull. How dare you? They understood exactly what he was saying. I and the Father are one before Abraham was. I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Blows your mind, doesn't it? I don't know how else to picture it. So verse 3 brings us into the ending. I know know it's moved really, really quick for us this morning, but watch verse 3 because it gives us an important detail about who this one is. Verse three, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Literally, it's saying the word, Jesus, is the agent of creation. This present world that you and I live in is radically different than God's original creation. We deal every day with the catastrophic results of the fall. Job's gone, somebody got cancer relationships break up, empty bank accounts. God understands all that. But it's not what He originally wanted. It wasn't His original design. He uses those things to draw people to Himself. But here's the cool thing. Jesus one day, He's coming back to restore everything to its original creation. It's a promise of the Bible. Right now, the creation that we live in, even the plants around us, They're in subjection to futility, the Bible describes it, meaning thorns and thistles, snake bites and bee stings. They all served a creative purpose at one time, now they mean harm to us. Look with me, Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So you and I approach this passage humbly, awestruck, worshipfully because of this. The man at the wedding, the man at the well, the man in the back of the boat, the man walking the seashore is the creator of the universe. That's who Jesus is. Four things that we've seen this morning about Jesus. here in your notes, but you're going to see them up on the screen real quickly. We, we've seen the time of His existence. Meaning that he's before all time, in in the beginning, the arch, the origin of everything. We see the essence of his identity. We see his relationship to God. The word was with God, and fourthly, the relationship to the world. This This should stay with you this week. His relationship to the world, meaning all things were made through him. You see, Jesus isn't just your redeemer; he's your maker. Wow. Who's more qualified to come and rescue you than the one who created you? God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father agreed in eternity past that God the Son as the originator of all things would also be the rescuer. So verse 14, if your eyes just drift down, we're not going there today, but verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us and taught us and got angry with Peter? He did. Walked among us. Loved on us. Died for us. And it's coming again one day for us because he forgives. It's profound. Are you feeling the weight of this? God the Son with face-to-face intimate relationship with the Father willingly left that for me, for you. Philippians 2.7, it says, He emptied Himself of all of His attributes. My mind just explodes with that. Here's why. If I've lost you on everything else this morning, hear this at the end. This is why God is so interested in you knowing Him, in having relationship with you. He didn't just send information. He sent Himself. That's how much He loves you. Not just sending information, sending Himself. Why? Because He doesn't want you to guess. You don't have to go to campus and hang out. You don't have to go to your relatives You can go to the Word of God in which He reveals Himself. Popular opinion doesn't get it. Culture does not get it. God the Son became Jesus the man. And don't be surprised if you're tripping over that this morning. Don't be surprised at the mystery of it. And don't throw it away because of the mystery. Because if Jesus is not God, He could not possibly accomplish your salvation. He could die for himself on the cross, but he couldn't die for the rest of us. It's just another man dying. But if he's God, and he can take away our sin, and he can, he can because he is God. If you're struggling with this very thought this morning, I want you to leave here in comfort, knowing that some of the world's greatest minds, theologically, meaning the study of God, have really wrestled with this. You, you all know that I love Charles Simeon, if you've been here any length of time, and Charles Simeon is a guy who died back in the 1800s, but a brilliant theologian. And he writes, I, I found this, I was reading through some of his stuff earlier this week, he, he writes about his own wrestling with this truth, and I want you to see his quote. Look at what he said about this very thing. "'I wonder not at the unbelief of those who call in question the divinity of Christ.' For if it were not so fully revealed as that it is impossible for a truly enlightened man to doubt it, I should be ready to doubt it myself. So inconceivable does it appear that God should become a man and make Himself the surety and substitute of His own rebellious creatures? But He is God, and therefore He can, and therefore I believe all that He has done." Maybe you're one of those this morning that can insert your name in there too. Maybe you believe all that He has done. So hear this thought. In doing what He has done, in God doing what He has done, He has acted like Himself. Because what does He say about Himself? I am merciful. I am compassionate. I am long-suffering to a degree we can't even begin to imagine. See, in doing what He's done, He's acted like Himself. So even though He's eternal, He's been born in time. Though eternally with God, He lived with man. Though He Himself, the living God, He died for man. And though having died, He was resurrected, that I might be one day, that you would be one day, that's your God. Why? Because nothing less than this is sufficient to meet my need. You have sin in your life, just like I do. The Bible promises that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that means we have to have a Savior. Anything less than that is insufficient, I have guilt, nothing less than the blood of God can wash it away. And so he did. Whatever else you may think you know about Jesus, the man, the eternal Godhead, the triune God, wants you to know the infinite majesty of Jesus. So God moved John to write John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. With God. If you're leaving here with your head exploded, I am too. It it just causes you to want to do cartwheels. So at New Hope, we, we leave with thoughts like this. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Apparently that phrase has made its way out the doors of this church because people came to me this morning who were here for the first time and said, I've heard that phrase repeated someplace else. Somebody who had attended here told them about it and they came back and wanted to repeat it to me. What you believe about God determines what you do next. I believe, I know, I know that I know that God desires to be known and to be in relationship with you. So I contend this morning when you sit here, 1157 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States of America, in 2015, Anno Domini, God sits in heaven on an eternal throne, dwelling in an unapproachable light, attended by myriads upon myriads of angels, And all those believers who have gone on before us stand in His presence with their jaws dropped open and their faces planted on the ground because they're in the presence of the one who has no beginning and no ending, who loves us to the degree that He came to dwell among us. That very one relinquished His throne. Why? because of his immeasurable love for you. If it's causing you to weep right now, it should. Keep that in the forefront of your mind, and then we will have a proper view of what should be celebrated, what should cause us to embrace him with gratitude and awe. You're going to get to do that in a song. The the team will be coming back up here in just a minute, but I want to pray with you about the things that you just heard. If if you're new here, maybe you've never even heard these words before, I encourage you to have some great lunchtime conversation with someone. If you don't have someone in your world that you can talk to about these things, come talk to me. I'd be honored. I don't bite, I promise. I'd be thrilled to talk with you about these things. Let's pray, church. Let's pray about the things that we've just studied. Would you join me in that? Lord God, we're going to do the best we can in a song in a moment to give you adoration and and praise, to heap glory upon you. Not, Not that we can add anything more to you. You are already complete. But we do this, Father, because of a response out of what we understand of who you are and what you've done for us. So for those here who have named the name of Jesus, I pray that you allow us to fill our lungs in a way that we have never done before. And to sing boldly and loudly because you are worthy of it. And for those who are investigating and trying to understand this, God, I ask that you would surround them with the power of your Holy Spirit. That the reality of these truths would sink in deeply. And that you would not let rest or sleep occur until that individual deals with this reality. So, Father, we do the best we can. We offer back to you a response. And the response is to praise you and thank you in the name of our soon coming king and all God's people said, amen.